The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll be looking at just verse 6 through 8 this morning. Paul writes, And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. In the book of Genesis, it didn't take too much time before the serpent tempted Eve, did it? Chapter 3. So pretty early on in the story, and people have posed the question of, well, how long did Adam and Eve live in the garden before uh, the serpent did this? Honestly, we really don't know the answer to that question. However, there's a pretty old tradition that suggests that Satan tempted that first couple on day 10, three days after that creation week of Genesis 1 and 2. And here's, here's the thought process behind that. The reason for that suggestion is that the Jewish Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which is the most important day in the Jewish religious year, happens on the 10th day after the Jewish religious New Year. If you remember from the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was, was the most important, most special day of the year because it was the only time when the high priest was allowed to enter the holiest place of the tabernacle or the temple. He took blood and he, he offered it upon the, the ark there the, above the mercy seat as an atonement for the sins of the people. That was after atoning for his own sins as well. And so this tradition assumes that it was on day 10 when... Adam and Eve sinned and God gave that first picture of atonement by killing an animal and making skins to, to cover that couple. I don't know if that's true or not as far as the timing. Can't prove it, can't disprove it, but knowing the wicked character of Satan, I think I can be pretty confident in saying he didn't take long before trying to sink his talons into the crowning achievement of God's creation. He's wicked. He's not only destructive, but he's impatient with his destruction. Think about the life of Christ. When Satan entered Judas to put into his heart about betraying Jesus to his death, that was not the first time Satan tried to kill the Messiah. He didn't wait around for 33 years letting Jesus grow up nice and quietly, letting Jesus have his ministry before really trying to do something. He didn't wait around very long after Jesus was born to start his destructive tactics. If you remember from Matthew, within two years of Jesus' birth, Satan has already put into the heart of King Herod to kill all the babies born at that time in Bethlehem. Satan is wicked, and he's also impatient. So if that's true, then where's the Antichrist? 
Why has he not showed himself yet? Why is he not on the scene? Why has Satan not yet climbed to that, that mountaintop of his evil purposes and fulfilled his climactic play against God and humanity? I mean, that's, that's, that is Satan's masterpiece, so to speak, is giving this world the Antichrist. So what's taking him so long? Why has he not made it happen yet? Well, the answer is because it's not his call. It's not his call. Even though the Antichrist will be Satan's prince, Satan does not have the power to determine when that prince comes to power. Only God does. Only God in his unlimited sovereignty has that ability and that power. So I, I want you to think about that this morning is God's unlimited sovereignty. God is sovereign, and that includes him being sovereign over Satan and over evil. And so there's, there's some difficult specifics in our text this morning. But let's not lose the forest for the trees. The overall message is that God is sovereign over all things. He is even sovereign over the timing of the Antichrist. And thank goodness he's sovereign over his termination. When I talk about God being sovereign over everything, including evil, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not implying that God is evil. I hope you know that. I think you do. I'm not implying that God in any way fellowships with evil. God is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. In 1 John, the apostle said, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. In James's letter, he wrote about God that God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. So there's no association. There's no commonality, no friendliness between God and evil. But he does have authority over it. So when I say that God is sovereign over evil, I mean that even evil has to answer to him. Even though God's not even tainted with one drop of, of evil, he still has power over it. He limits its scope. He works, uh, he, he works to restrain it in different ways. And we can even see that today. And I want to I share just a few things with you um, before we jump into the text about this. We would all agree that we live in a world that's a bad place, right? It's filled with sin, evil, crime. But really, if you think about it, it could be worse. It's bad, but it's not as bad as it could possibly be. And the reason for that is because God has put in place certain things to keep evil in check, certain limits. And I'll give you a few examples. One of those is that God has ordained human governments, civil authorities, to keep the peace and punish evildoers. Paul talked about that in Romans. Yes, our world's a rough place, but what if you didn't even have human governments? What if you couldn't even arrest criminals? What if there was no overarching civil authority to tell someone, no, you can't steal, no, you can't kill, or this happens, there are these consequences? What if we couldn't do that? What if the over 1.2 million prisoners in the United States just had to be released today because we had no authority to hold them? Human government is one way God limits evil. God also created us with an innate sense of morality. Now, sadly, we don't always follow it, do we? 
But everyone knows that it's wrong to kill, and know, they know that it's wrong to steal, and it's wrong to lie. That's why atheists don't always steal their groceries. There's a lot of honest atheists. They pay their bills. They don't steal from Walmart every time they go shopping. Why? They, they know it's wrong. It's just, it's just built in. It's, we call it our, our conscience sometimes. And that, that ethical conscience that God gave humanity is another way that evil is, is restrained. Hopefully another way that it's restrained is with you and me. And because of you and me and because of North Bryant and other churches. Hopefully the presence of Christians and churches in this world works to influence this world in a positive way. Jesus told his followers to be salt, to be light. He said a city set on a hill can't be hidden. Christians should have a great influence on this world. In fact, you can do some research and look at history. Most hospitals and universities were founded because of Christian principles. Those are just some ways that God demonstrates his ultimate sovereignty, even over evil, putting certain things in place that, that keep it in check and restrain it somewhat until he finally does away with all evil one day. Let me give you one more concrete, very biblical example of this. In the book of Job, was Satan allowed to do anything he wanted to Job? Was he given a blank check, so to speak? No. God limited what Satan could do. If you remember the story in chapter 1, God told Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Well, guess what? Satan used every inch of rope that God gave him. He took Job's servants. He took Job's livestock. He even took Job's children. But he couldn't go one inch further. Job's health remained because God is sovereign. In the next chapter, though, if you know the story, Satan pushed the envelope a little more. God still placed a limit upon what Satan was able to do in Job's life. God told him, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Once again, Satan used every inch of rope that God gave him. The Bible says that he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. But he couldn't kill Job, could he? Because God is sovereign. As evil as Satan is, he cannot take one step outside of the fence that God has built for him. Satan is kind of like that ferocious junkyard dog. He may be mean and nasty, but thank goodness there's a fence. Thank goodness there's a sign that says, beware of dog. And thank goodness God is strong enough to hold the leash. Satan can't get outside that fence. He cannot do anything that God does not allow. And as we kind of funnel it back to our text this morning, that even includes elevating the Antichrist. He can't do it until God says he can. Remember, the background of our text is that Paul has urged the Thessalonians not to be shaken, not to be troubled, don't be deceived into thinking that Christ has returned and you somehow missed out and you're still suffering and you're not with him. He said that day would not come unless the rebellion happens first, unless this ultimate rebel is revealed. But then we get into 6, 7, and 8, and it's the whole question, well, then what's keeping that from unfolding? Satan's very evil and he's very impatient. 
And now we're, we're 2,000 years removed from this letter. It still hasn't happened. What's taking Satan so long? Well, Paul says in verse 6, And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. His phrase about withholding. Some of you have a translation that says what is restraining him or what is holding him back. Those are good translations of this word withhold. It's an interesting word because sometimes it's used in a positive manner uh, in, in the sense of holding fast to some teaching. We want to hold fast to, to true biblical teachings. We, we want to we hold those. But sometimes this word sort of has a different sense uh, in the idea of holding something back or holding it down in the sense of restraining something, suppressing something, you could even say. And that fits the context here, is that something is keeping this evil plan from unfolding at just any random time. So that the Antichrist, notice the end of the verse, might be revealed in his time. That he might be revealed in his time. Word time is, is interesting here. It does not refer to chronology. This is, this is a word that's less about minutes and hours and measured time and things like that. And more about an appropriate season. More about an appointed time. What we might just say in our language is at the right time. There's a great quote in J.R.R. Tolkien's famous story, The Lord of the Rings where the wizard Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. That's kind of the idea of this word. It's just the right time. It's at the appointed time, the appropriate season. And we even see this idea of, of right timing. I would even go so far as to say divinely appointed timing in the life of Jesus himself. I mentioned earlier about King Herod when Jesus is two years old or less. King Herod sent out this wicked decree to have all the babies in Bethlehem born, uh, all the babies in Bethlehem killed. But it wasn't time for Jesus to die yet, was it? So what happened? The father warned Joseph in a dream to take Mary and the boy Jesus to Egypt for safety. It wasn't the right time. Another time in Jesus' life, a crowd tried to throw him off a cliff. But the Bible said that he just passed through their midst and went away. It wasn't time yet, was it? There was another time where they picked up stones to kill him, and the Bible says Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And even Jesus, in, in the Gospel of John, several times he used phrases like, My hour is not yet come. My time has not yet come. Jesus was not going to die at some random moment in some random manner. Do you not think that the Father has more sovereign control over the life of His Son than that? Jesus was going to give His life in the prophesied way at the prophesied and proper time. And listen, God has the same sovereign control over the timing of the Antichrist as He did with the timing of His Son. That's how powerful God is. The Antichrist will not be revealed. Though God says so. Something's holding him back. Something's holding, holding this at bay. And that's important because verse 7, something we know too well, evil's already working. 
right? Verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Why do we have to hold this back? Because evil's working. This word mystery is a neat word. In, in the New Testament, when the word mystery is used, it actually refers to something that was at one time a mystery, but now, but now it has been revealed. It's not a mystery anymore. It shouldn't be to us. And one, one good example of this is how Paul used the word in Ephesians chapter 5 when he spoke of marriage. He said it was a mystery. But now it's been revealed that marriage points to something bigger than marriage. Paul said marriage was a mystery, but I'm telling you it points to Christ and the church. Well, for a long time, this world didn't know that. We didn't even know what a church was for a long time until Jesus Christ came and started his church. So Paul explained that a husband's sacrificial love should mirror Christ's love, and a wife's submission should mirror a church's submission to Christ. That's a mystery. Not anymore. Now it's been revealed. Now you understand this in a deeper way. And so similarly here, biblical truths and prophecies in the gospel of Christ have exposed evil. Specifically in this context, Paul's even revealed much about the evil of the end times. He talked in verse 3 and 4 about this ultimate rebellion that's going to occur, about the revelation of the man of sin, and what he's, what he's going to do is in opposing and exalting himself above every form of God, every so-called God. So that's no longer hidden. This, this mystery of lawlessness, and we understand the we understand the lawlessness promoting uh, those evil things is already at work. That's no surprise to us. But it can't bring all of this to fruition just yet because there's something suppressing it. One author just said it simply like this. The man of lawlessness will not be revealed until the proper time in spite of the fact that lawlessness is already at work. Satan's working towards that goal, but he can't get ahead of God. He, he can't get outside of that fence of God's restraints. He can only do so much. So in the middle of verse 7, though, Paul continues, and he says, Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. This word letteth in the King James comes from the same word that was translated with hold in verse 6. Probably your modern translation, if you have that, still uses the word restrain, which is good. You see that, that connection there. This is where these verses get difficult. The way Paul wrote this lends itself to, in verse 6, what we might say, we might call it more of an impersonal restraining force, where in verse 7 there may be a more personal uh, restrainer. You can even see that probably in the English with the idea of, in verse 6, what restrains. And in verse 7, your translation may something, say something like, he who restrains. So kind of the difference of what versus who. Um, boy, there's been a lot of ink spilled to try to answer the question of this restrainer or these restrainers. There are a lot of different suggestions. From the Roman Empire and specific emperors, uh, human governments in general, to world leaders. Some suggest the nation of Israel, uh, the preaching of the gospel, churches, the apostle Paul himself, 
the Archangel Michael, God's providence, God's Holy Spirit, and I'm sure there's probably dozens of others that, that are out there. Y'all ready for me to disappoint you? I don't know. I'll tell you why I don't know for certain. It's because I was not in Thessalonica when Paul told them orally about these restrainers. I wasn't privy to that information. He tells them, you know what it is. Remember, he already said in verse 5, remember when I was with you, I told you these things. Paul, why didn't he just, why didn't he just remind them again? You know, get a little more specific there. Well, the Holy Spirit didn't lead him to do that, right? So we're left to think about it without being completely dogmatic about it because we don't know. We weren't there. But with that being said, if we do think logically just about what we're talking about, while it may not answer all the specifics, I think it will help. We are talking about restraining the ultimate work of Satan. I think everybody would agree with that. So you tell me who's powerful enough to do that. God. God is powerful enough to suppress any work of Satan. And so, can God use men, governments, churches, angels, etc.? Absolutely he can. But his blessing and providence and power are necessary to hold Satan back. Think about in your own personal life for just a minute, just sort of individually instead of on this big, huge scale. Just, just get really personal. The New Testament commands us to withstand the devil and his schemes. How do we do that? Through the power of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he said this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You can't do it yourself. You need God. God's power is a must. So with that sort of larger thought, I'm comfortable in saying whatever and whoever these restrainers are specifically, ultimately this is a work of God and His Holy Spirit. Has to be. Now, he may use other things. He may use intermediaries in his work. But the power is his. He has to be involved. Otherwise, where's the power? Some would question, yeah, but Brother Matt, if, if it's God's spirit, then how can he be taken out of the way? We got big problems if God's spirit just leaves, right? How? That's an easy one to answer, okay? It doesn't mean the Spirit's no longer the Spirit. It doesn't mean the Spirit's no longer omnipresent. It doesn't mean anything like that. The Holy Spirit can cease from doing something and still remain fully God. And I'm going to give you an example of that from the Bible. Do you remember in ancient Israel when King Saul just kept on refusing to obey God? And when King Saul rejected God, God rejected him. And if you remember the story, what did the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit removed himself from King Saul's life and his kingdom. <gasps> Calm down. Didn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't 
in the world. Didn't mean he wasn't working in Israel. Didn't mean he wasn't in control. It just meant that he was no longer working with Saul and his kingdom. He was no longer functioning in that manner or in that role. I think the same is true in a way here. When we're talking about holding back the, the Antichrist. Whatever this restraining force and restrainer are, God has to be behind them. His spirit has to be in play here. But that doesn't mean that, that when he stops restraining the Antichrist that, uh-oh, he's lost his power, or uh-oh, he's not here anymore. Or, it just means he's no longer doing that. Just like he no longer worked in King Saul's kingdom. God will continue to fence in lawlessness and hold Satan by the leash until his perfect timing. And when that timing comes, Satan will take every inch of rope God gives him, just like he did in the life of Job. He will run headlong into his master plan. Look at verse 8. And then, or at that time, Satan's not going to wait around. And then shall that wicked be revealed. The phrase that wicked is very literally the lawless one. That kind of echoes back to verse 3. Some texts translate man of sin. Some say man of lawlessness. It also echoes back to verse 7, right? The idea of the, the mystery of lawlessness already being at work. Well, now we read in verse 8 that when the restraints are loosed, when the suppressors stop suppressing, the lawless one will be revealed. There'll be nothing holding him back, and Satan will make his move. His man will be revealed. And there's that same word again. We saw it about Jesus in chapter 1. It's that, that revelation, that uncovering, that unveiling. You say, how's that going to happen? How's this man going to be revealed? Paul already told us in verse 3 and 4. Look back at those verses, halfway through verse 3. He says, For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. There's that word again. The son of perdition. Now notice verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. If you ever had any wonders about who the man was, Verse 4 ends all that. That's for sure the uncovering at that point in time. But we have to understand and trust that it is God and not Satan who is sovereign over when that revelation occurs. But let's not stop there and miss the end of verse 8, right? See, that's the best part. <laughs> verse, the end of verse 8, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Think about this. Not only is God sovereign over the Antichrist's timing. I mentioned this earlier, but thank goodness he is sovereign over his termination. Paul says that whom the Lord shall consume. And he uses another phrase as well. We'll talk about it. But I want you to just think about how the Antichrist's reign of terror will end as soon as Christ comes back. 
Jesus' victory over this disgusting man will be so decisive that Paul used two phrases to describe it. He could have used just one and it would have been fine. He used two. In the first one, he says that Christ would consume him. Some translations use words kill or slay. This word for kill or slay, if your translation says that, it was actually a word that was used in public executions. I don't want to go too far, but I think that's what this is going to be. It will be a swift public execution. Remember from chapter 1, Christ is coming as the judge in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Antichrist is the epitome of that. And just like the word of a judge carries some power, carries some authority to sentence someone who is guilty... Paul says that Jesus Christ will consume or publicly execute him with the spirit of his mouth, with the breath of his mouth. I wonder if John the Apostle gave us a small foreshadowing of the power of Jesus' word in his gospel. Do you remember when the mob came to arrest Jesus, and Jesus identified himself as, I'm the one you're looking for. Do you remember what happened to the mob? When Jesus said, I am, they fell backwards. They quite literally could not stand in the presence of their creator. When he identified himself, when he spoke, when he said, I am, they weren't. And Jesus will have no problem doing the same and even more to the Antichrist. And Paul could have stopped there. He could have stopped there with that victorious statement, but he kept going. And he said at the end of the verse, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. I don't believe this is describing anything separate or new. It's not two separate events. It's just... Two different ways of, of reciting the execution. Just two ways to describe it, but this does add some color because this word destroy is an intense word and it's built off of a word that means to, to render something idle, to render it inactive, useless, or ineffective. Isn't that great? Jesus Christ will render the Antichrist completely useless. He will make that man totally ineffective. To put it pretty bluntly, Jesus Christ will end him. This time Paul says, with the brightness of his coming. We've talked about this word coming quite a bit. It's that same word that describes a, a high dignitary uh, officially, physically, personally visiting a city. It's that same word. But this word brightness is new. Our English word epiphany comes from this word, and it, it just literally has the idea of an appearance. So it's the, the appearance of his coming, the brightness of his coming, the manifestation of his coming. So think about it this way. The very appearance of the true king of kings coming in glory will render this joke 
who is trying to make himself God absolutely nothing. Now, Paul could have described this with just one of these phrases, but he used both. He used such strong language, I believe, to point to the fact that this isn't even going to be a battle. There will not be a long, drawn-out war. Nobody's going to be sitting on the sidelines nervous about which side's going to win. Jesus' victory over the Antichrist and his wicked armies will be completely decisive. Listen to how the prophet Zechariah described this scene. He wrote, This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. That's what will happen to the Antichrist and his army when Jesus comes back. They will literally rot. That's the judgment that King Jesus will bring to this man of sin and his wicked armies, and you and I can be certain about it. You can trust it because God is sovereign. He's even sovereign over evil. That doesn't mean he associates with it or fellowships with it, but it has to answer to him because that's how powerful God is. He is sovereign over everything. Why is he still restraining this? Why not send Christ back to this earth today? Quit restraining evil and deal with it, right? If you remember from our study in 2 Peter, however long ago that was, there's two main reasons why that hadn't happened yet. First, God has a different perspective on time than you do. Peter said that one day with him is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like one day. He is completely outside of time. So we may think, my goodness, what's taking him so long? Maybe just getting started. He is outside of time. But secondly, God is more patient than we are. God knows that every day that passes, while this is still being restrained, is another day that offers sinners a chance to repent. Another day where a boy or a girl or a man or a woman can put their faith in Jesus Christ before it's too late. That's why things haven't unfolded yet. That's why things are being restrained. It's not time yet, because maybe you need another day to repent. You're being graciously given a chance. If you've never trusted in Jesus, stop wasting the opportunities that God is giving you. When his spirit bothers you, when it convicts you, when he convicts you, don't run from that. Submit to his conviction. Conviction is a good thing. Repent and trust in Christ before it's too late. And for those of you who have done that, as you live for him and as you serve him, Boy, this world can throw some stuff at us, can it? We do live in a world that's filled with crime and evil and sin and pain. And 
Don't forget that God's sovereign. Just like Job, nothing can happen to you if God says no. If God says yes, trust that he has a greater purpose for it. And trust him to grow you because of it. And trust his grace to be sufficient during it. Because he is sovereign over all things. Let him be the sovereign Lord of your life. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, it truly is just beyond our comprehension to, to try and wrap our minds around how powerful and how providential and how sovereign you are, but we trust it. We're thankful that we can trust it. And we pray that as we live in this evil world, that we are thankful for the ways that you restrain it. And we're thankful that ultimately this world and her future is in your hands. So we trust that one day our king will return and make all things right. And while we await that great day, we pray that you will give us the faith to serve you individually and as a church. Bless our efforts for your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.